I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me as I talk with today's most important influencers, guides, and change makers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaway from their personal journey and their greatest wisdom. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is Self Helpful. In this episode, we're talking about aging well, uh, specifically maintaining our mental and physical strength and capacity. The media talks so much about lifespan, but what I care about is health span. And I want to be healthy and able to the very end, whether my end is 60 years old or, or 100. My expert on this topic is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I have known of Dr. Lyon for a long, long time through functional medicine circles. Uh, her focus and expertise, and I love the, the term, is muscle-centric medicine. That's what we're talking about today. And we are going to talk specifically about muscle and how we're missing this necessity in our culture that's so obsessed with so many of the wrong things for aging well. Dr. Lyon is board certified in family medicine and is a subject matter expert and educator in the practical application of protein types and levels for health, performance, aging, and disease prevention. And we're going to get into the topic of protein in relation to muscle. Her new book, if you're watching the video over my left shoulder here, is Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well, which I've been studying and is the catalyst for a lot of our conversation here. Uh, also, check out her podcast. Uh, right now, you just search for it, The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. Uh, Gabrielle, it's just a gift to have you on here. Thank you. Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
Well, it's been a long time coming. Again, I yes, yeah, so many crossover people, and I, I you know hear and read about you and your work with other folks I've had on the show. I think even recently it might have been Dr. Will Cole that we did a series with, and uh, some of these things came up in protein and muscle. First off, you pinned it was at the top of your Instagram page. I think it's pinned there. It's a quote that says, "The quality of your life is a direct correlation to your muscle health." That's really where I'm coming in on this because it's not so much about the muscle in and of itself, but your focus is ultimately the end result, which is quality of life. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Well, well stated. Well, in that, I, I want to hit that because we often get on the focus, you know, and people think, oh, it's the point is to build muscle and have muscle, but in, in, that's not your message in and of itself. That's not the yeah. point. No, you know, oftentimes uh, skeletal muscle uh, has really gotten a, a bad rap. It's really deeply involved in this concept of bro science. When people think about skeletal muscle, and you were an athlete, people think about, and probably still are, they think about being jacked and tan and self-tanner and good hair and muscle tees. But all kidding aside, individuals think about skeletal muscles as it relates to sport performance and looking good in a bikini or looking good on the beach or naked. But that is one incredibly small aspect of what makes skeletal muscle so critical to longevity and aging. Skeletal muscle really is this organ of longevity. And for the listeners who are just hearing about this for the first time, skeletal muscle is exactly that. It is an endocrine organ. It is the largest organ system in the body or the average American. It makes up 40% of their body weight. And skeletal muscle is responsible for a multitude of things, which I am sure that we are going to talk about all above and beyond uh, strength and performance. Totally. And I want to hit some high levels because it's something we, yeah, we talk about. Yeah. I've been a lifetime athlete, but even I, and we're going to get into that. I don't think I've looked at it correctly um, and given it the value that it actually has outside of just performance. So yeah, I want muscle to go deal with the physical pursuits that I have, but I haven't thought about it long-term in the way that we're going to talk about here. I first want to hit off though, Gabriel, that I mean, this is something that we're having to address. We've got to go and work out and create this muscle only in in an artificial sense, in essence, only because we don't live like we used to. I mean, our great grandparents didn't need to go exercise. We were watching the movie, one of the Yellowstone uh, movies, um, you know, one of the prequels or whatever they've got now. And they're out and they're, you know, cowboys and they're doing their thing. They don't need any more exercise. All they need is recovery because the whole stinking day is exercise and lifting and whatnot. And yet we have these sedentary lives. So we do need to then go, is that fair? I mean, because it feels like that. I'm going to go lift these inanimate objects. It's not in and of itself that fun to me. But if my life doesn't sit near the desk, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, this idea that the human body really does choose this path of least resistance. And we see that across physiology. When we think about the way that we live now, we are largely domesticated. Um, You know, you think about an animal that's in a cage, while we're not in cages, we're pretty darn close. Um, This idea that we have cars and escalators and things that we frequently understand, this is not how we were designed to live. 
we were not designed to not be lifting heavy things, to not be sprinting. This decline of aging that we see, I think, is extremely artificial. And we have framed it in a way that creates frailty as common. Frailty and aging is a common thing that we all witness that doesn't have to be. Um, I, I believe that it is artificially uh, generated by our domestication. And, you know, just based on the statistics, 50% of Americans are not working out, by the way, 50% are not working out. 24% of Americans are meeting the daily requirements for exercise and um, the 150 minutes plus the two days a week of resistance training. The idea that we have this obesity epidemic that we've spoken about for the last 50 years is so interesting to me in the sense that it's not about the food intake and the highly palatable food. It was this truly this change in the way that we live and how muscle has been so largely ignored really when it's the pinnacle of health. There's this term called sarcopenia. You've heard about sarcopenia and I'm sure you have seen people that you love lose muscle mass and strength. In medicine, there is this international classification of disease. So the ICD-10. Sarcopenia finally made its debut in 2016. That's, that is mind-blowing. That they finally recognized this destruction and loss of strength in 2016 as something, a a medical necessity, that a disease that has to be addressed. Well, you mentioned that we go in to see a doctor, medical professional, whatever, and they are going to check out our vitals, which of course is, you know, beyond shallow baseline. And even if we go in and get something deeper to look at other biomarkers, as you said in the book, when was the last time, everybody listening to think about this, when's the last time you went in and anybody asked you or measured your muscle mass? I mean, we don't even have the tools to do it generally. Now we've got, so you don't know this, Gabrielle, but my studio is in a functional medicine practice that I co-founded. So uh, my buddy, best friend and, and doc is on the other side of the wall talking to a patient right now. And he bought an in-body uh I don't know what it's called, the in-body thing. So you stand on, it looks like a weight machine and it measures, you hold on to it, it measures your BMI and your muscle mass and whatever. It's like a $10,000 machine. The average person, unless it's a high-end fitness center or something, you're not going to have that. We don't measure muscle mass. I mean, it's just, it's it's pretty, am I wrong? It's pretty much void. No, we don't. In the we markers. don't. And that's amazing to think that this incredible endocrine organ that really determines the trajectory of how we age and how we live is not even being measured directly. This is a a fundamental flaw in the way that we've been thinking about things. You're exactly right. Someone could use an in-body. Someone could use the gold standard is a DEXA. A DEXA actually looks at body fat percentage. The rest of the information from the DEXA is extrapolated. It's not a direct measure of lean body mass. And by the way, lean body mass is muscle, it is bone, it is connective tissue, it is blood, it is everything other than fat mass. And up until recently, other than a CT or MRI, we have not been able to directly measure skeletal muscle mass. Um, There's a, a new way of doing that's largely done in research now, which I I'm so hopeful we'll be able to make it into practice. And it's called a, a D3 creatine. So it's a deuterated creatine. It's a labeling. 
which someone will be able to take a pill, they'll be able to test it in the urine, and you will get a direct measure of skeletal muscle mass just because of the way the pharmacokinetics are, which will be fascinating. Now, I will also say when this happens and becomes commonplace, you are going to see a change in the literature. You will also see a change in the understanding of skeletal muscle mass. People often talk about strength, but there is going to be an optimal level of muscle, of healthy skeletal muscle mass that I believe we will be able to identify. Um, so this really circles back to your statement about physicians will measure a BMI, a maybe they'll measure body fat percentage, but they do not look at skeletal muscle mass, nor do they typically look at measures of strength and think about muscle health, but that will hopefully change. I'm working well, on you, it. Yeah. And you talked about resistance training and that's something that came to me, the need for it, the value of it, the benefit later in life. I, so I, I'm an endurance guy. I was a pro cyclist. That's my go-to. That's my happy place is to go ride, to go run. I'm getting ready next week, go with a bunch of guys and we're doing this 40 miler and the grand Tetons. And, and I enjoy doing that. And yet I started noticing, I'd go to these races out here in the Rockies and there'd be some old guy, some old lady, and they're doing it, which is awesome. I mean, you know, the rest of their, their, their peers are on the couch or in the nursing home or dead. So it's awesome. They're out there, but they're shuffling. I mean, their ability to get down and pick up a penny would be very minute. They can shuffle along. And I thought, I don't, I don't want that. I want to be able to drop down, do some burpees or, or pick up a grandkid or whatnot. That's going to take something else. And that's what turned me towards the gym in essence. And I've got a home gym and I do that, but I'm thinking, man, if I am going to be capable and then further for you to take that and say, okay, as I'm working out the muscles and this is, you know, right out of your book. The brain is a muscle. I know we hear that, but I don't think that we're actually putting that together. If it's a muscle, my, 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 the skeletal muscle is, is supporting that. And that's what I love is seeing these people who are later in life have muscle and we're not paying attention to the fact that they, they are cognitively there. That's the end result that I want as an old guy. I may enjoy the aesthetics and the ability now, but as a 90 year old person, I just want to be able to think and write and talk. Yeah. And skeletal muscle plays a huge role in this. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I did my fellowship in geriatrics and nutritional uh, sciences yeah. at Washington University. And as a geriatrician, that is a physician that specializes in individuals over the age of 65. And the training in, at Washington University is Alzheimer's. There's a, a cognitive clinic. Um, which uh, assesses Alzheimer's, the various kinds of Alzheimer's, uh, memory and just cognitive impairment. And that is incredibly fascinating when you begin to look at the interface between body composition and brain function. Yes, your brain is an organ and it is incredibly important. And the major things that impact Alzheimer's cognitive impairment don't begin later in life. These issues begin easily in your 30s. Alzheimer's, these, this type, two, type 3 diabetes of the brain, these vascular issues with Alzheimer's, these begin decades earlier and then they are revealed later on. Where does muscle play a role in this? Skeletal muscle, which we should frame out, 
is again, responsible for looking great in a bikini and all those other things, but it is your metabolic sink. And people are starting to recognize that Alzheimer's, you know, there's multiple forms, but uh, a large majority of Alzheimer's disease is a metabolic disease, meaning there is, um, it's like type three diabetes of the brain. Where does that come from? That comes from unhealthy body composition throughout a lifetime. Where does unhealthy body composition come from? It doesn't come from obesity. I don't think it comes from obesity. And the literature would also support that, that it really is. And uh, William Evans has a great paper in which he showed that it's not the gain of body fat that is so impactful on people's uh, morbidity and mortality, which is the death from any kind of disease. It is the loss of skeletal muscle, which is much more impactful as we age than the actual gain of body fat. So if individuals care about being cognitively aware, that begins early and that the one lever that an individual can push is that physical lever. And skeletal muscle health is so key to that. Well, and I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I wanted to as well, the aesthetic aspect. We think about that. I was talking to my kids recently. They watched, they wanted to see the new Indiana Jones. So we thought, well, let's go back and watch the old ones. And what stuck out to me is here's Harrison Ford back then. He was probably, you know, 25 or 30. I don't know about looking good in a swimsuit or whatever. I thought about, man, shave your head. You know, everybody wear a big burlap sack. And the point is the muscle we have underneath for the capability that it gives us. And I was actually going to ask the question, but you kind of answered it to begin with. Even if you have some fat on you, that that's not as detrimental as the muscle you don't have. We're not, I, I haven't thought about it in that that's way. That's exactly correct. Isn't that so amazing? It is. It is. I'm thinking about from a, so from a health standpoint, in essence, to exaggerate the point, you're going to say, yeah, better that you're, I'm going to play with this, better that you're 20 pounds overweight, but you've got muscle than you are not overweight maybe, but you're, as you know, you're skinny, kind of skinny, weak, skinny Protectic fat. Even. Or sarcopenic. Okay. Um, I would agree with that. I, I would also say I don't recommend being 20 pounds overweight because if you have a lot of adiposity, a lot of fat tissue, you likely have fat tissue around the organs yeah. and not fat doesn't just exist around the organs. It exists within the organs and fat tissue can exist or fat can exist within skeletal muscle. And when fat is infiltrated into skeletal muscle, that is one cause a major cause of insulin resistance. So unhealthy skeletal muscle looks like a marbled steak. Again, I will also say that it's not the gain of body fat that matters. It's really that loss of skeletal muscle mass that is going to be detrimental, exponentially more detrimental than gaining body fat. Okay. I want to keep digging into that. I do want to bring back again, the point is is the capability. We're not doing, I mean, muscle is the the methodology in essence of the vehicle, but the end result is where we can get with it. I looked up, you probably know this name, uh, Gabrielle, uh, Ernestine Shepard. So she came to fame. She's a, a black lady who's a bodybuilder. So I know she's exactly like, who she is. Yeah. Guinness Book of World Records. 
And uh, so you can go look at her, Ernestine Shepard, type it in. You'll see her. She's, uh, what is she? She's, I think she's like, nine, she's 87 right now. She's 87 years old. Um, I also saw Jim Arrington. He's got a Guinness book for the oldest bodybuilder. He's 90 years old. So Jim Arrington, look up either of those and you see the video of them and it shows them lifting their weights. And we're looking at that and going, oh, they've got some muscle. And again, I'm sitting there enamored with, does anybody realize that here's an 87 year old and a 90 year old? Think about those people in your family. They're dead. They're in the nursing home. They're drooling over in the corner. And these folks are sitting there giving an interview about their muscle. But the point is they are cognitively a hundred percent there. That is the end goal. That is literally my motive. Otherwise I would, I mean, to be, be honest, I wouldn't do a whole lot of resistance training. I do, you know, I want to be out here running and riding, yeah. but I just wouldn't. But if that's the end result and yeah. I don't see it from the older endurance people, I see it from the older I mean, muscle building. Well, aspect. also, also let's, let's take that one step deeper, especially okay. because you're an endurance athlete. That is very helpful for cardiovascular health, assuming that you are not overdoing it and causing, uh, you know, hypertrophy, significant yeah. cardiac hypertrophy. But um, endurance activity is critical. It really helps with mitochondria. It, you know how amazing it is for the body. That is one aspect. If you were to fall... If you were in a crisis situation where one of your kids had to be picked up over your shoulder and carried out somewhere and you had not trained for that, I mean, I suppose there's that uh, rush of adrenaline, uh, sure. adrenaline yeah. but the reality is you have to train for life. Hmm. You have to train for life. It is not, life is not just cardiovascular activity. You do need to build and maintain skeletal muscle. You have seen it with older endurance athletes. It does not become easier to maintain skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. It becomes much more challenging over time because of the changes that happen to skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle, we didn't really talk about what it does. I know that we will. Skeletal muscle is your metabolic disposal unit. It's like your uh, garbage disposal. It's where the majority of glucose goes. 80% or so of uh, glucose disposal, which is getting uh, glucose, which is sugar out of the blood and into the muscle. Why do we not want a whole a high level of glucose in the blood? Because the definition of that is diabetes. It's very toxic to um, the organ system. It's very toxic to the vasculature when uh, there are high levels of blood glucose. You need to be able to, to dispose of that and having healthy skeletal muscle is the way to do it. The other thing is that skeletal muscle is actually a nutrient sensing organ. It senses the quality of the diet and it does that because it senses uh, amino acids, in particular branch chain amino acids, one of which is called leucine and when you are older, and by the way, I'll back up, leucine is essential for this uh, process called uh, muscle protein synthesis, which is ultimately what we want. It is a biomarker of health. Muscle protein synthesis is this idea of incorporating amino acids, with our, which are the building blocks of proteins, into the tissue. <sighs> and over time, we believe that that's what helps with uh, skeletal muscle accretion, right? The, the building of muscle. Now, when you are older and you are not training and 
uh, arguably just when you are getting older. Although I do have some thoughts that potentially people like those Guinness Book of World Record holders probably don't have um, what we call anabolic resistance. But with aging, the nutrient sensing capacity of skeletal muscle declines. What does this mean? It means that it becomes more difficult to actually stimulate the tissue like you did when you were younger. What does the end result look like? The end result looks like sarcopenia. Okay, can I ask then, is in a layman's sense, are you saying that, well, if you are younger, from youth on, if you are consistently uh, building muscle, involved in muscle resistance, and you do that, and now you're 70 and you're still doing it, you have X propensity. If you don't do it through most of your life and try to pick it up later, it's going to be that much harder. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. And there are changes. I think that that's a great summary. And there are changes to this tissue that when you don't get your nutrition right, these these changes to the skeletal muscle compounds, what we are seeing when individuals get smaller and more frail and weaker is in part due to their dietary choices, as well as their, their change in training. Oftentimes, people are much more sedentary. And when you are younger, it is really critical to, it's kind of like saving money. You think about saving money, you think about building wealth. The same thing is, is like for your health. When you are younger or how you age, you really want to put muscle in the bank. And, okay. and that becomes critical. And so when you're doing endurance activity, while great for cardiovascular health and, um, you know, et cetera, and mitochondria, it's not great for muscle hypertrophy. And muscle hypertrophy is really that building of skeletal muscle so that it serves you later on in life. Okay, give me a uh, unpack. You keep using skeletal muscle. And I read that in the book. And I was just going to ask you here, is, are, are you saying in essence, well, and I'll, I'll ask it in this way. One, I, I'm assuming that it doesn't, doesn't mean that more is better. So if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, that, 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 that it's better that you need Oh, I, well, answer that. More is yeah, better. And I, I got to follow I have thoughts about this. I okay. have thoughts about this. Um, there is a, a likely genetic threshold that someone could obtain naturally. Um, and when we we're talking about bodybuilders, this is not a natural physiology. Yeah. I, I think that we're comparing apples to oranges or apple. You know, it's not kind of like an apples to apples comparison. It's different. I do believe that there should be a, a target for skeletal muscle. I don't have that answer. Nobody does. Nobody knows exactly. Kevin, I don't know what your ideal muscle mass should be. Uh, we could say maybe it's 50% your body weight. Nobody knows because it just over time. You're supposed to look at me and say, I nailed it. I was, I was hoping uh, for yeah. Yes, you nailed it. Thanks. I mean, there's no way to tell what, uh, we just don't have those metrics. Really, there's there's other ways that that individuals are thinking about it now, whether it's appendicular skeletal muscle mass, and, and there's all these other indices. But does that translate to an optimal level of muscle mass? It doesn't. And again, this is this conversation is truly changing the paradigm of how we think and bringing to light the core fundamental flaws in the ways that we have been thinking about things. I, I don't know what your optimal muscle mass. I know that if you're 30% body fat, you're going to have issues. Yeah. But I, I don't know what your optimal muscle mass is that you should be shooting for that would be ideal for an individual. Well, even the aspect of 
I was wondering, you know, you've got the, there's been debates I've seen, uh, the bodybuilder versus the strength, you know, trainer. We go look at the strongest competitions, whatever, even like the the CrossFit type stuff, which I appreciate. And it's not the super hulked out, you know, bulked out stuff. There's, it feels like there's different. I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, carpenters in the book somewhat. I know some of those guys who've been doing it for years. And I mean, their strength is unreal. Their grip strength, their just overall mobility, I would put above uh, some of the bodybuilders who look like they should be able to crush them and they're just not, they're not as strong. It's, it's kind of a puffed up thing. How, how do we explain that? What do you mean? Like well, that they're not as strong as you would think them to be? Yeah. That some of the strength, some of it oh, that we're not talking about that, that just because I, my strength and health thereof in muscle, again, is not related to uh, that, that, that I need to get, you know, twice as big a bicep that I have right now. I, I think that that's an, yeah, I think that's an interesting um, question because typically if someone is using an anabolic steroid, they're going to grow. There's going to be, uh, whether it's hypertrophy or a change in muscle fiber type, it is going to be primed much more so than uh, a, a natural progression of, of putting on tissue. Okay. Uh, and then the other aspect is, could you look at someone and determine how strong they are? Not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which That's, is also an interesting, I actually hadn't thought about that much. Um, it just always stuck out to me because I, you know, like my grandpa, when he was, you know, in his 70s or 80s, he didn't look like much of anything. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and Air Doctor is just the best. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, 
but getting them to actually give their payment info is. And Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Holy smokes, man. If he grabbed your arm, I mean, it was, it was like vice grip. And I think, where does oh, that... His grip strength was good. There yeah, his lifetime of doing things and stuff. Okay, well, and I want to get into some of the aspects of what, you know, what type of, of workouts, what type of weight resistance we're doing, how much. But before that, what I've realized, and I've literally, you know, had this happen is that secondary to whether I'm feeding it well. And now we get into the aspect of protein, which I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't tell you before this. I thought I'd divulge it here. That is not my strong suit. I grew up and it was, you know, an, an endurance athlete. It was, back, it was back in the pasta days, man. You pasta load, you car, carb load, yeah. you that we lived on, on pastas and whatnot. And then at some point I went vegan or I read, you even mentioned the book, Diet for a New America by John, John Robbins. I read it. I took it. We did vegan for a long time. We came out of that. This was a long time ago. And I was doing well as a, I was, I was a pro cyclist. I was doing well. People used to ask where you get your protein. I had no idea, but I won last week. So, <laughs> so it doesn't which, matter. I know, I know. So, so well, I want to hit that. Uh, but then even as I've gone on in life, I have oftentimes struggled somewhat. I, I don't have a natural appetite for my, for protein, for meat that much. I feel like it sometimes it feels heavy. And so I have it. So again, I have you on the show for a reason because I'm reading it. It makes sense. Yeah. This is not this has not been my strong suit. So talk about protein because if we don't feed the exercise, it's pretty moot. That's what I've realized for me. Yeah, I dietary protein is an interesting conversation because it is much more controversial than any other macronutrient. So the macronutrients are carbohydrates, fats, proteins, and then uh, another source of calories would be alcohol. Carbohydrates, you know, everyone will talk about too much is not great. Fat has been a huge focus, whether the you're keto or carnivore, or people are talking about cholesterol, whatever the, the subject is. And they make all these kind of recommendations around carbohydrates and recommendations around fats. But protein is like the black sheep of the macronutrient family. And it has a very interesting history. Now, just for a point of reference, I did my undergraduate in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism in, at, with Don Lehman at the University of Illinois. I have been studying uh, and practice. I've been studying this for about two decades and uh, been mentored and continue to be mentored by Dr. Donald Lehman, who is a world renowned protein researcher and uh, really has moved the needle when it comes to how we think about protein and muscle. Now, with all that being said, when I started, 
there was not controversy. People didn't really care if you were going to follow Diet for a New Planet or, or whatever it is. The vegan, vegetarian world, um, nobody argued about protein. It was not nearly as heated. This is a new phenomenon in the way that it is um, much more vocal now. But the roots of this existed for quite some time. And I talk about that in the book, really the history mm -hmm. of where we are today. Now, let's take um, a kind of a look back in time. And dietary protein recommendations, they came out, the, the original protein recommendations, where I think it was a percentage of calories was in around 1943. And um, again, this was happening when there was World War II and people were rationing and sending all the high quality proteins to the soldiers. And at, on home soil, people were encouraged to build victory gardens and save all these nutrients for the people at war. Then, um, so this was kind of the first iteration of rationing. There was also this um, conversation, not, not quite at the same time, but there was a guy named uh, Sylvester Graham. Sylvester Graham was a Presbyterian minister, and he actually died very early, which is, I think, why people don't talk so much about it. I think he died around 55, and he believed that individuals in order to obtain morality and continue to be a moral uh, upstanding citizen should abstain from sex and alcohol and should not eat meat, should just eat uh, fruits, vegetables, and grains. Hmm. And this was, uh, you know, very early on. And he um, really influenced, I, I hear that he was a very charismatic speaker and people really followed him. He influenced a very powerful man whose name was um, John Kellogg, mm. who ended up creating the graham cracker mm -hmm. and ultimately granola. Interesting. Um, so this is also around the time where there is an increase in processed foods. Mm. Now there is profitability. Things are different than commodities. Commodities are whole foods like beef uh, eggs, chicken, pork, milk, you know, dairy kinds of things. We now move into a processed uh, world where we have granola and graham crackers and, and things. Shelf life. At the beginning, though, were really made to create a moral polarization for people. Mm -hmm. So they're using food to make an upstanding citizen. It's propaganda, basically. Scary. It's yeah. actually scary. And it hasn't really died down in that way. We're seeing a resurgence of it, I believe, in um, the way in which food is talked about. The plant-based. Yeah. yeah, I'm just setting yeah. the stage for this conversation because uh -huh. before I talk about dietary protein and I talk about these high quality sources, it becomes really important to think about what is the history of the conversation yeah. and why is something so uh, essential, so polarizing. And we have to ask ourselves that when things become emotional or emotionally charged and become polarizing, there's really two questions that we have to ask. Number one is who stands to gain from all this fighting and potentially the smokescreen? Um, you know, who, who really stands to profit 
And then the other question becomes, why is this happening? What is the underlying reason why um, food would be so polarizing in this way, especially a macronutrient that is essential for health and wellness? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are two questions I would like to leave at the listener's uh, foot uh, to really, really think about. Now, in so from 1943, when they started talking about dietary protein, which was really based on this idea of soldiers, how do we feed these soldiers? In 1968, we make the RDA, which is a recommended dietary allowance. And that is at 0.8 grams per kilogram, which translates to 0.37 grams per pound of body weight. That's nothing. This is the minimum number to do to um, prevent deficiencies. The minimum number to prevent deficiencies. Now, that number has not changed since 1968. We have not changed the dietary recommendations since the 60s. On the heels of what I'm going to say is propaganda. I mean, kind of. Uh, One would have to then ask themselves, well... So does that mean there hasn't been any new science that has come out? Or is there a reason why we haven't really changed these numbers? And I would say, as a a physician who sees patients and who is fellowship trained in nutritional sciences, that there is a lot of new information that has come out. And especially as it relates to aging, that would uh, really be important to change these recommendations for improving survivability and improving the aging process. Yet we still have uh, 0.8 grams per kilogram as the recommended dietary allowance. When we hear recommended dietary allowance, people often think that that is the maximum. It is the minimum. And the way in which we frame protein when an individual, uh, just in the context of vitamin C, Kevin, if you were to get sick and I told you that the RDA for vitamin C is 60 milligrams, one, you know, like a small orange, would you say, okay, that's definitely enough to help me get over my cold or X, Y, and Z? Well, I happen to know better. So, yeah. <laughs> but you would also, my friend, you would also say, nah, you know, I, uh, I'm really not feeling well. I think I'm going to take some extra vitamin C. Yeah. Now, when you think about protein, nobody, nobody talks about it that way. Mm-hmm. But Dietary protein is essential for all the things and all the structures in the body, including neurotransmitters and including muscle health and gut lining and, and you name it, it's included. Well, I want, can I interject real quick? I mean, I want people to hear, cause we talk, this comes up a lot on, on the show as we're talking about health and wellness. I mean, what we're doing now, especially in America, if I can just pick on that, it is not working. I want people to hear this. So you, to hear you talking about the history and what we've done in the past and how we viewed this and you're you know, lining up is this, this, this is not, this hasn't, hasn't been on par. It's not, obviously it's not working here. We are in a time when we have, we should have all the information. We have access to it, free access to it. And yet we are sicker, fatter, sadder than we ever have been and people are aging. Back to what I said in the intro, lifespan. I see this constantly. Oh, the lifespan is over here at this age. Yeah, but the health span is getting shorter. And we just have people who linger. I don't want to linger. 
I, I want to be running strong till, you know, something catastrophic happens, something gives out like it should, like an, like the elk on my land, you know, they go along, they're not hobbling across the pasture with an oxygen mask and a cane. They're going full tilt until boom, they go. And that's when they should go. That's what I want to do. But we look at lifespan, even though, yeah, we've gotten really good at keeping people alive, the heartbeat going, even though nothing else is working. So this, this, it makes sense, obviously, that this, what we've been doing does not work. And you're saying more protein. I do feel like that there's people, I don't want them to confuse it with calories. I mean, we are over-caloried for sure. And yeah. we're obese. That's different. I mean, protein is, you're, and you keep talking about the right kinds of protein and you know, yeah, lean we'll muscle. Yeah, we about all that. Uh, it's interesting because at the, the time of rationing, uh, blow your mind. They were rationing, I believe, I, I wanted to put this in the book, but again, it took two years to write and they took a lot of stuff out. The individuals were rationed, I think around 3,500 calories per person. And the average woman, I want to say the average male was 150 pounds and the average female was maybe 120 pounds and they were rationing around 3,500 calories. So the question becomes... Uh, uh, obesity wasn't an issue. Yeah. So where did everything kind of go awry? And again, we have this influx of processed foods, which is not shocking, but also there's a lot less labor, a lot less movement, a lot more uh, ways in which we can become domesticated. And also before we talk so much about protein, I do want to highlight something that's really important and not history, but current, current. Okay. And the commodities are under the jurisdiction of something, the USDA. Um, and the commodities are whole foods. And that means that is, again, beef and milk and corn and soy, whole unprocessed foods that come from farms that their collective budget, so they pool their budget together, all the commodities, their collective budget is around $750 million. <laughs> Pepsi, and they're under the jurisdiction of the USDA, and they are restricted on what they can say. I will give you an example. If I say milk, you think does a body good, or I say beef and you say, well, what's for dinner? For dinner. Um, or I say pork and you say the other white meat. So those are the taglines. You don't hear them say, well, we're a better source of protein than beans, or milk is more bioavailable than almond milk. They don't say anything and cannot say anything disparaging or come to their own defense. They cannot. Now, on the other side of that, it, they are, I'll just pick one company, PepsiCo. PepsiCo's marketing budget is almost $2 billion. The collective budget for all commodities is $750 million. The behemoth of PepsiCo that also, um, you know, you name it, they're under a different jurisdiction. These massive companies stand to gain massive profit and they can say, well, oat milk is better for you and the environment than cow's milk. They can say beef is, you know, has X, Y, and Z is doing this to you. Whereas Impossible Burger is the, the solution for all of these things. Processed foods can be disparaging against other foods. 
And don't you think that there is a large budget to create a lot of confusion? Mm -hmm. And don't you think with that kind of budget, with just one company, that who has the money really controls the narrative? Sure. And so this becomes very confusing from a consumer's perspective. And I, I do think that when you are witnessing advertising and seeing these things over and over again, one must ask themselves, well, that's interesting. And, and who stands to profit? I'm going to give you another case in point, And then I'm going to be quiet. The idea that we should stop consuming red meat because it's killing the planet. That's like a really common one. Sure. To me, that is a total smokescreen. And here's why. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 80 some percent of greenhouse gas and issues with the environment, 80 some percent, maybe it's 83 to 88, come from industry, electricity, mm -hmm. and transportation. Mm -hmm. Collectively, agriculture, including crops, cattle, and everything else, collectively make up 9%. Processed foods have to consume industry, like they have to consume, right. uh, they have large, you know, factories or whatever it is. But why is it that we are hearing this narrative about, well, you shouldn't consume red meat because that's killing the planet. Well, but is it really? No, you, we are not, no matter how we decide to do it, going to eat our way out of climate change no. because that is not the huge driver. It is the other things that we are doing. So I, I think that that becomes important to understand before we even embark on the conversation of dietary protein, because people are so confused on, on the science and on the narrative of it. So they're going into this conversation with um, thoughts about dietary protein that are very misguided. Yeah. Well, no, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, we've got to focus on the media out there is a fight between the highest paid arguers, in, in essence, or the, the people shouting uh, what's happening, which is, I mean, honestly, it's a great benefit of podcasts like this, where we can bring in the people on the front lines and talk about what is really happening. And that's why you're here with a book where you've done the research and you're saying this is what I have found that help people age well. You're not a billion dollar company and we hope people go listen to the show and buy the book, but this is not a, uh, this is not a paid for media campaign here. And it's interesting too. Again, I'm, I've been the no protein guy a lot, not necessarily. There's been some aspects of what you're talking about, but some of it has just been, you know, I came from a, an endurance athlete standpoint, and we got sold on carb loading, you know, a long time ago. So now here we are looking at protein and I'm concerned about 90 year old Kevin bottom line. That's why we're talking right here. Yeah. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about my 90 year old wife and my kids and those people who I want to see my parents, who I want to see them live well, health span, healthfully till the end. I do not want to see them linger. I do not want to care for them 
lingering. And I, I say that with a sensitivity and compassion for because I see a people out there who are taking care of aging parents, but we are, li- whoever's listening to now has the opportunity to impact their own life. Uh, their, their, the, those behind them and even make an impact on those who are ahead of them. And we've seen great. We had, you'll appreciate this. We had Dr. Dale Bredesen on the show a couple of years ago, yeah. talking about not just halting our Alzheimer's to a degree, but even reversing it, which is something that's again, not in the vernacular today. If you get Alzheimer's, it just is. And you're going to, you know, it's going to go its way. And he's saying, no, it's not the case. And he's in this camp as well. So we look at protein though. You, I mean, to get down to brass tacks of it, you recommend a gram per your ideal body weight. Which yeah. is which is important. Your ideal, not your body weight. So if you're 500 pounds right now, we're not saying that. Right. But your ideal. So my ideal. Well, it's about where I am. So I'm about 165. So if I look at that, we're talking about. So I, I literally I read your book and I'm going, okay, what is that? And I look, what's a can of tuna? It's like 43 grams or something yeah. like that of, of protein. We're talking about four cans for me. 100, 165 pounds. We're talking in essence about four cans, uh, little cans of like three ounce or three, uh, I don't know, the small cans of tuna, about four of those. I'm not, I'm not, I've never been remotely close to that, Gabrielle, literally never. So I, I was looking at it yesterday and going, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, my, my journey on this starts now. I wanted to talk about it first. Okay. For real. It's going to be really fascinating to see because you've been so endurance heavy. Um, Mm -hmm. and for a lot of aging individuals, it becomes very difficult to eat that much. Not that you're aging, but I'm 52. I'm 52 and, and not, and you're right. It is. When I look at that, I go, oh my gosh. I mean, to, to start, right. to start off the day with that, I'm going to have to, that's going to be a process. Well, it could be. The other thing is you could supplement with a whey protein shake. I think yeah. it'd be a really easy solution. Yeah. And for the listener, they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, that's so much protein. Then start with 0.7. Um, you know what? I'll even go lower. Start with 100 grams of dietary protein. The average female is eating around, I don't know, maybe 60 some grams of protein a day. Maybe. That's not enough. That is not enough. I don't know. I don't know that I am. That I have been, you know, historically, yeah. um, it is just I got out of the habit, um, you know, coming from vegan and uh, vegetarianism, whatever, and kind of just got out of the habit. So for me, it's looking at it, and this is going to be a new, it's like starting out a, a new, resi- you know, workout program. This is a new thing. Okay, uh, and listen, and you mentioned that you had been vegan or vegetarian. Mm-hmm. You can get enough protein, um, vegan or vegetarian. It is going to take. You know, I say that and it's true. So the evidence would support that. You well, I read could, the book. It's harder in essence. It is harder. And the question becomes, what are we, how do you want to spend your time? And yeah. what is the benefit, right? Uh, new, you know, animal-based products are more nutrient dense. It's, Ooh. they have creatine, they have anserine, they have carnitine, they have highly bioavailable vitamins and minerals. Uh, to me, as individuals age and eat less, it would be a huge mistake to take that out of the diet. And that's exactly who is impacted when they talk about meatless Mondays and all this stuff. Uh, When we think about who becomes impacted, it's nursing homes, military, daycares, anyone who's getting kind of government funding. But, you know, to your point, if you are vegan or vegetarian, could you get enough protein? You could. If you are trying to eat whole foods, you would probably be the exception to the rule because the amount of carbohydrates from the whole foods, you know, typically is, is much higher. 
Mm. And you do have to manage that carbohydrate load. Well, for, for me, it's near impossible, honestly, because we do have, because then we get into issues of food sensitivity and things like that. I literally on a, on a, you know, one of the big tests on food sensitivities, allergies, whatever, I struggle with legumes. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you're a vegan, man. That's a primary. And I, and I know that if I take in legumes, I'm going to pay for it later. So I, I do struggle with that. And on this, and you talk about this in the book, there are a lot of people like me who, for whatever reason, whether there is, you know, their past programming, their habits, whatever, and they go, oh my gosh, you know, meat's just too heavy for me. I feel so much better on, you know, vegan diet or, or whatever. And I have, so I'm that person. And I've also realized, yeah, I've also just programmed my body for that. It is not used to the protein. It's not used to a lot of things that I've then had to adjust it to. So as I hear this, it makes sense. I'm looking and going, okay, so I have naturally inclined myself. Maybe there's even a genetic predisposition based on my ancestors, whatever that did that that now I'm going, it's going to, it's going to be harder for me. Somebody else is going to hear this and they're going to go rock on, man. I love my meat. This is awesome. I just yeah. got a new lease on life. I'm going to do that. And it's going to be great. And there's going to be people like me go, man, I struggle with that. And I want to feel good on my next performance, whether it's creatively out of my right. brain or out on the trail, I'm going to have to work in to this to, to a big degree. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's totally doable. Uh, one of the most important muscles that you said that you have to work is really your mind. It yeah. doesn't matter what the plan is. You have to be able to really commit to it, which you shouldn't have a problem because this is kind of how you've done your whole life yeah. and execute on it for you. Uh, I believe a way to, if we were to stay in line with your current beliefs, then a way to do that would be adding in either a rice pea blend shake or a whey protein you easily be able to get 50 grams of protein uh, on each shot of that. And that would be great. And then that would be a great starting place for you. It, it would be, it would literally be the easiest doing a smoothie uh, like yeah. that with, well, I should call out. So we, we advertise with athletic greens. I think you do too, don't you? Uh, no, no. Okay. I thought I heard that, but athletic greens or something like that, but there's a lot of things out there. Do your smoothie with now that's not a protein thing, but to do that would be a great help for me to get started. And then on, but now let's talk about literally the proteins. I mean, you do talk and advocate a lot for red meat. I now I in, in from a health standpoint and even a sustainability standpoint, I know you had, um, I think you had your, you, you had Mark Hyman on, or you were on his show. Yeah. Uh, recently, oh, no, I was on his. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Mark Hyman. Yeah. And he is a big proponent of, you know, grass fed, grass finished uh, meat and, and whatnot. So talk about the types and the quality of the proteins and go ahead and talk about it from a meat standpoint. So you can do it from a vegan. Right now, let's go ahead and talk about yeah. it. From a meat standpoint. Well, first of all, um, I do not think that you should be limited by the kind of meat. Would it be great if everyone could afford grass-fed, grass-finished um, meat? It would be. Is that practical for everybody? It's not because Fair. it can be very cost prohibitive. Fair. That being said, um, the majority of meat still comes from smaller farms. And whether it is grain finished, there are a lot of ranchers out there. Are there issues with large conventional factories? Yes. And number one, there are bad practices in everything. Right. Number two, we literally have an entire world to feed. Our population 
is out of control. The best thing that we can do is make them metabolically healthy. Best thing that we can do. That being said, again, my primary answer to your question is, does it matter if it's grass fed or grass finished or any of the other things or organic? No, I do not believe that. I think it is, it would really limit people's choices. And I don't think that that is the end result goal. So if you can, great. But if not, at least we're, we still want the meat. And t- but talk to me about then beef. You, you already mentioned this, you know, beef, pork, chicken, and let's say fish yeah. are the big ones. And I would even pull out salmon specifically yeah. as the, of course, the highlight one. And we have another advertiser that sells those things and sells them in a healthy way. You do spend more for that. But talk to us about those, uh, the benefits or what you would promote. Yeah. Yeah. Number one. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In my mind, there is absolutely no replacement for high quality proteins, not just because of the protein. It's not about just the protein. It is about the food matrix. It is about all the other things that ride along with these high quality proteins, whether it's salmon with omega-3s, depending on where you get the salmon, it has anthocyanins, you know, there's that orange color. Um, there's, There's many different reasons why animal-based products are very nutrient-dense. Oftentimes when we talk about fruits and vegetables, we talk about the phytonutrients. Well, there are low molecular weight compounds in animal-based products, Hmm. you know, on the uh, equivalent but different end. And we fail to really talk about that. Um, When it comes to beef, the majority, um, a huge majority of the fat in beef is actually monounsaturated. So it's like olive oil. Yeah. And the majority, uh, there's a, a large majority of the fat in beef is actually monounsaturated. Um, the uh, leaner the beef, in my opinion, the better. And that's potentially where grass fed can come in. Uh, those, uh, you know, animals tend to be leaner, but you can always choose lean cuts of meat. The protein has seven grams of protein per one ounce. And it is highly, highly bioavailable within this food matrix. And I was also looking at some new recent data that the the skeletal muscle, the tissue of the meat can potentially have some of the other, um, I don't want to say phytonutrients, but these other nutrients depending on the quality of the feed that the cow is getting. Um, so that is very fascinating. Now, when I think about chicken, uh, again, it's a very lean source of of chicken of protein. I, I do think that is great. It also has seven grams per one ounce. Fish has roughly five grams of protein per one ounce. Hmm. Salmon is good. However, salmon is higher in fat. I do believe that total calories matter. That is also not just my belief. There does happen to be, uh, there is an equation of calories in, calories out. No matter how you 
decide to think about it, whether it's a gut microbiome or, you know, thyroid hormone or, or et cetera, they, it, it does matter. Um, and then pork, again, I, I typically don't eat a, a ton of pork, but it is a lean white meat. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm out here in Colorado. Bison is real popular out oh, here. Bison is phenomenal. Yes, bison of, is amazing. Yeah. I had I had uh, did a guy's adventure thing, and they had yak burgers from the farm down the way with yak. I don't know where that fits in. And then uh, even like uh, elk and venison are really big mm-hmm. out here. And yeah, from a lean standpoint. And I do want to, of course, my next question. I'm not going to ask it now. I'm going to save it for part two. Is I want to go through literally your your diet, your recommended, but even yeah. just you, Gabrielle. But we'll do that in part two. Uh, which I'll also do that in regards to working out. And I want to hit on that now. So we're talking about protein. That's what's going to feed the working out because I've been over here and I kind of got the muscle message at some point and go, gosh, I'm going to have to do more than just the endurance stuff. I'm going to be that nine-year-old dude shuffling along and I can't bend down and pick something up. So I, I want to do muscle, started doing that, but I wasn't feeding it. So I'm the guy trying to do the Arnold Schwarzenegger workout and not much has happened until a guy says, well, dude, what are you eating? And he said, that's not supporting that. So protein has got to feed that, but now we have to actually go. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, there's resistance training, which is just not a part of, I mean, I can get endurance a little bit by running up the stairs, you know, park way out in the parking lot and walk in. You can do that. We can all incorporate that in our lives. It's almost impossible for the average person to have resistance training as part of their lives. I mean, I'm not out. We actually do. We don't have to. We chop wood, you know, so we're dragging trees, but it's few and far between. That's very cool. That's very cool. Oh, there's about nothing that kicks my butt more than us. We'll chop down the trees on the property, the standing dead. And then instead of making 10 trips, I want to make one trip. So I grab that log and drag it. Love it. An hour of that destroys me. Absolutely destroys me. Yeah. Um, But looking at resistance training, I have to... For my life, I have to manufacture it. I have to buy, I mean, I've got the weights or go to the gym and I have to sit there and do something. So, you know, we've talked about protein. You even give an amount at a gram per your ideal body weight. So we can all look at that. I know you've got in your book, I'm not going to go through it all now, but we've got, you know, you do have carbohydrates and you do have fats. And we talked about- I am very not, I am not anti-carbohydrate. In fact, my diet is high in lean proteins and also higher in carbohydrates. So, and, I'm not and then fat, which we talked about, Dr. Mark Hyman, hey, that's, that's who I think about with fat. He's been the big proponent of fat. So we've got those. But then what are we doing? What is the average person? They're not looking to, again, be like you said, they're not gunning to, to look a certain way in a bikini or be able to jump over buildings in a leap and a bound or whatever, but yeah. they want to be well. And they're going, okay, what do I need to do? Do I need to be pumping iron two hours a day? Do I need to be maxing out and mega reps and the stuff that we see and people go, Oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do? So I think uh, first place to start is to do some definitions. And when we think about resistance training, we think that it is a very well established, which it is effective um, interventional strategy for enhancing muscular adaptation. Mm-hmm. And adaptations could be anything from increase in muscle strength, size, local muscular endurance, kind of like what you are doing when you are chopping wood for a large amount of reps. You know, and ultimately what we're looking for is we are looking for an adaptation. We are looking for a change in um, skeletal muscle to create an adaptation. And oftentimes there's this continuum that we hear about, or, you know, there's 
like definitions that strength would be, you know, like one to five uh, reps and hypertrophy could be eight to 12 and endurance 15 plus. But this is what the typical definition is. There's more evidence to suggest that it doesn't have to be rigid like that. But a, you know, you could do lighter weights with more reps and really go to a muscular fatigue or a, um, again, it's the adaptation and the stimulus that we are after. So I I want people to think that they don't have to uh, be lifting, you know, super heavy weights to make Mm -hmm. an impact on their body. Because that's actually not true. There is this strength continuum that is um, like strength hypertrophy kind of continuum that can happen. So that is really important to recognize. And then strength, when we think about strength, it's basically we can define it as the ability to produce a maximum force against an external resistance, whether that's picking something up or doing a resistance band or anything uh, of that nature. Um, now if I were to make a recommendation for an individual starting on a program, here's what I would say. Number one, you may never be ready and that's okay. Okay. Do not see, you weren't expecting me to say that, Kevin, Mm -mm. you were expecting me to go right into it. Yep. Go military on them. No, you may never be ready. And in fact, you should plan on talking yourself out of it. And I'm bringing this to your attention and everyone who's listening's attention because you are going to be on to yourself. You are going to be aware that I'm going to tell you a strategy and you are going to try to talk yourself out of it. Because perhaps if you are someone who is listening at home, who is not accustomed to doing any kind of weights or resistance training, but prefers cycling and endurance, you are going to stick to that. How do I know that? Walk into any single one of the gyms. Where is the area most busy? Yeah, cardio. Yeah. How many times do you think those people walk in and say, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to do something different. And then you get there and what happens? You Mm -hmm. go right to what you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that because you must be aware of your weaknesses. Yes, I'm going to call this a weakness because it is not going to move you into that future self. That if that future self of who you want to become is strong and capable through aging, then you have to take the actions to become that person. And one of those actions is going to be resistance training. And whether you are ready to do it or not, you're going to take action and you're going to be aware. Okay. I want to make a, I want to make a statement on that because my listeners have heard something that I need to clarify in regards to what you just said. So I'll preface it this way. If you are sedentary, meaning you don't do squat, doing any kind of movement is great. And so to take that, and so my my buddy who co-hosts a lot of the shows, Dr. Randy James, he's an MD, functional medicine, uh, ex, you know, like, like Hyman. And he says, you know, people ask him, what's the best type of exercise? That comes up a lot. Okay, so I have a new lease on life. What's the best type of exercise? And to begin with, at least, that's I'm prefacing that. To begin with, he says, whatever you'll do. If it's badminton, do that. If it's pickleball, if anything that you'll keep doing is great. So I would say, yes, if you're sedentary, yes. Now we're going to give that a caveat to say, if you want to be well and age well, you're going to have to add some, well, no, actually, let me ask you that. I was gonna say, add some 
resistance training. But if we looked at that, let's come back to the question of what exercise is best. I'm actually going to throw that at you then to say, if you're going to err on the side of cardio or resistance training, if you, Dr. Gabrielle Line is saying, okay, if you, if you're looking at aging, if you want to be that 90 year old person who's cognitively there, like Ernestine, whatever her name was, where would you err on it? Cause I assume you're going to say resistance training. Yes. Yes. Okay. It is a non-negotiable. Okay. It is a non-negotiable. Yeah. It, it's a non-negotiable, especially for aging. And it's not to say that cardiovascular activity is not important. It is. But if you believe that skeletal muscle is the organ of longevity, and you believe that the more healthy muscle mass you have, the greater your uh, glucose disposal will be. So the better blood sugar regulation you will have the better your insulin sensitivity will be, the better your triglycerides will be. Uh, again, these are all biomarkers that are critical as it relates to aging well. If you believe that the more muscle mass you have, the greater your survivability okay. against anything that is coming to you, then you have to agree if we were to prioritize then we would say skeletal muscle and resistance training would be the priority. If you were to fall, break your hip, if you were to fall and not be able to get up, but you have great cardiovascular health, what is going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Your survivability, when they put an individual who gets sick. So, you know, first of all, we don't age in a linear trajectory. We age through periods of catabolic crises. What does that mean? This is some of the earlier work by uh, Doug Patton Jones. Um, and when we age, this catabolic crisis, for example, would be getting the flu and being bedridden for a week. Mm -hmm. When you are young, you get the flu, your strength goes down, you might lose some muscle, you go right back up. When you are 50 and you are bedridden for a week, how long does it take you to recover your endurance yeah. and your strength? Yeah. Not only that, if you are not incredibly physically active, you go like this and this becomes your new baseline. Then you go along. Then all of a sudden, I don't know, you go on vacation and you're just laying around like a slob. I don't know. And you are not exercising. You go a little bit lower. You get another flu or uh, you get an injury, you name it. There are catabolic crises that happen over time. And when you age, it becomes much more difficult to go back up to baseline. What protects you during this time? That's skeletal muscle. I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm, I'm, but I'm going to. I'm, 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 I'm curious. Thanks. I'm curious. If you looked at COVID, I mean, we just came through that and the cases of COVID would be interesting amongst athletes on the endurance side and the muscle side. Because I, in growing up in an endurance arena, I almost got the feeling of a fragility that we're good until something catches on. And then you're, you know, my buddy who's the ultra endurance runner and he's out for a, you know, a week. It, I mean, it took him out. And as opposed to somebody who either didn't get whatever virus was floating around or they got it and recovered. Well, and I see you smiling. So I assume you're going to yeah. go. So go with that. 
go with that. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, COVID and, and these injuries, I mean, we have, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right. It has created a environment of fragility that is exponential. I mean, you're just right. That's why I'm smiling. Which is what we see. And, and what we, and, and part of this I wanted to pull out too is when we're talking about aging well, okay, so back off of muscle and protein. So if our point is aging well, we now expect, especially in America, I think, and, and I, of course, I, I don't, I can't speak for all the other cultures. I've not experienced them, but I know here that we expect fragility. That's just a given. We That's expect right. at this point cognitive impairment is just going to come. And I think we've just kind of said, ah, it's okay. And it reminds me of, I saw a picture that somebody sent me. You've probably seen it. It's kind of like a guy cut in half. And on this side, he's obese. And on, and it says he's obese and it says suffering. And over here, it's, you know, a chiseled workout and it says suffering, two different types of suffering. We're going to suffer one of them. If we can bring people over, I'm going to suffer the gym and the lifting of the yeah. weights. Otherwise I'm going to suffer over here, man. I don't want to, who wants to, who would raise your hand and say, are you okay with lingering? I mean, that's not, they're not having fun. Yeah, it's not comfort and relaxation and vacation. They're lingering in pain and and cognitive impairment. And here we've got a solution. So talk then go back because I, I interrupted. Go back to yeah. you talked about it. I can't remember the way you said it, but in essence, we're talking about a muscle. So especially you said somebody who's not do, done that. We are talking about doing whatever it takes to. Uh, this is super layman's term. This is a self-helpful show. I'm not, I'm not a clinician here. So we're talking about tearing a muscle down. So it'll build up a little bit more, tearing it down, building up a little bit more. So there, I want you to talk to that. And then I also want a little, I'm curious, my experience is there's a time period. Like if we did know my ideal muscle mass, okay. If we did, I'm going to work on it. I am. I listen. And also in my book, I, I do put together some charts Mm -hmm. uh, from the best evidence, but We'll figure it out. So if we looked at that though and said, okay, let's say mine is X and I do the work to break down, build up, break down, and boom, and then I hit it and I'm there. My experience is once I've done that, maintaining it is incredibly, uh, it doesn't take much, honestly. It feels so easy. Yeah, now I, so once I get up and I can do, I've got my little push-up routine and my pull-up routine and my my dips routine. And, uh, and sometimes I'm, you know, out lifting weights, but even those, once I build up and I'm doing, you know, 30 of this and 50 of this, I can almost get away with like a couple times a week. That's, that's really minimal, but at minimum dropping down, I can do the amount and I pop up, even if I do one set, maybe I'll do three sets, but maintaining it feels really easy. So we're talking about a hard period. I'm asking, I think it's my experience, but I'm asking, am I, am I on base that a hard period of building up to that point and then maintaining, it's not that difficult. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. How do you feel when you know you could just bust out some pull-ups and some push-ups? Was there a time where you couldn't do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was a time when, yeah, initially it was, it was kind of, it was kind of lame. I mean, I could, you know, cardio, I could kind of tough out some, but it was kind of lame. Embarrassing. Then How it do you ex- feel is knowing that you can do that? Capable, proud of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it just 
feels good. Even like a good, I mean, gosh, I know the flow of endurance stuff. I get out there and I'm flying along and I feel the flow. It's kind of that in a moment of dropping down, doing those, I've got to, I kind of do them on my, I kind of do them on my knuckles and do the military jump thing, whatever, and have my little set of that and jump up. And it, I mean, I can feel it kind of coursing through my body and I feel the word is like virile and, and almost primal. Pretty incredible. Right. And you had to actually earn that. Yes. So when you started, like you said, it was kind of lame. Burpees so, suck and pull-ups suck. But I love it. The idea that muscle is this currency of longevity. And I, I'm going to highlight the word currency because currency we think of as something that can be traded. We think of currency that it can be bought and that it can be bargained for. Skeletal muscle is the currency that 100% of the time has to be earned. And who you become in that process is powerful, unstoppable, confident. It makes everything better. I have never, I've been practicing medicine since 2006. I have never heard someone say, I, uh, I can do push-ups and pull-ups and I'm worse off. Right. Fair. You Fair. become more capable, which is a word that you used. Mm -hmm. And that capacity and capability is a transferable skill. Yes. And I know that we are talking about muscle and I know that we are talking about protein. And I think about this a lot, as you can imagine. And here's what I think. Why, if people know how important exercise is, are they not doing it? I don't have that answer, but what I would say is if we can figure out the lever to push people in that direction, whether it is challenge, whether it is thinking about the person that they can become, whatever it is, is so critical to get that right because it's going to change everything, not just for the metabolism, but if we believe that we have a frail society. And there's a saying, it says, good times make soft men and soft men make hard times. <clears throat> the same is true for how you conduct your physical life. And so how do we inspire people to become strong? And that's why I titled the book Forever Strong. It is, you know, I'm a physician and... The truth is, I use medicine as the modality to get the best out of people. And this book is an example of that. That word you use, capacity, is one of my favorite ones. I want the capacity to do more, be more. I also want the capacity for joy, for hope, yeah. for creativity, for decision-making, for critical thinking. And my my burden with what you just said and even asking you know, why do we not do it when we know that it is the payoff is out there. It's kind of, you mentioned saving, saving money. Mm -hmm. We don't like to do that. It's not fun in the moment. I'd rather buy something, spend it on something that I get right now to save. It does not feel good. And then you got them. I'll pick on the Dave Ramsey with his debt free stuff. The people who get to that point and go, Holy crap, we're debt free. It's a new lease on life. I mean, it, it, it is. So for here, for you to go back and say, what does it feel like to have, strength and mobility 
and wellness. I, I think that's the other reason why people do it if they haven't experienced it. Once you have, so once I am now, so now I have more muscle on me today than I ever have been. I, I, I don't ever want to go back. It feels too good. And as you said that, yeah, I, I can feel the adrenaline rush of dropping down. The push-ups are my right. favorite thing. Uh, the dips are next. Pull-ups, man, are still, I love being able to get up there and do them, but they are just, it's just hard. It does not feel good for me in the moment, but then you drop down and then it does. And then knowing I'm the kind of, I love that term. I am the kind of person who can, I'm the kind of guy who can do those things. I could protect my family. I can carry that crap. I can help somebody in an emergency. I can do those things. And even more so, I want to be the guy who's cognitively this muscle up here as a result of down here continues working to the very end is my goal. I, I want to ask you, cause we are going to have a part two and I want to get into your specifics, Yeah, but, uh, I do want to ask what are, and maybe you just kind of went over it. When we look at, when we look at protein and we look at building muscle, where are the, I was going to ask the biggest myths around that. I don't know if I want to ask that you take it whichever way. Yeah. I can tell you the biggest myths from your audience. Your audience is going to say, if you're female, you're going to go, gosh, I, I think I'm going to get too bulky. That is going to be your number one myth um, or that you've hit menopause and this is just the way that your body is going to be. If you are male, your biggest myth is going to be you can only absorb 30 grams of protein at a meal or um, that, yeah, I, I think for men, that's pretty much what they, what, what I hear. We, so those, you know are the, those are the biggest myths. Because you spoke to women specifically, back when you asked me a moment ago, you know, what it felt like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't think it's it's sexist. Hopefully I'm just, most men have experienced muscle. More men have experienced muscle at some point in their lives through sports, through athletics, through the, through the direction, the paths that they were programmed to go down to. They have experienced muscle and what it feels like than women. So is there, is there something different? extra you would add in this regards to, to muscle that you would add to inspire, inform women specifically who may have never experienced this, who likely may not more, more so than a man. Well, I would say it is never too late to become physically powerful. Whatever that you have ever heard about just doing cardio or Zumba, Pilates, all those things that are great activities, nothing is going to make you stronger and more, um, and, and have more, I'll use your word capacity, Mm -hmm. uh, than doing resistance training. And, and I'll tell you this and resistance training, listen, Pilates could be a form of resistance training. I am talking about being able to lift a 55 pound kettlebell and go and carry it. I am talking about being able to lift, I have a Bulgarian bag right outside here, lift that up, throw it over your shoulder and carry a kettlebell at the same time. There is something very uh, inspiring about human resilience and women can obtain that too. And the current narrative has, it just has pushed women away from it for whatever reason. And and maybe some women don't like to lift heavy things or or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, Just because you haven't doesn't mean you can't and it doesn't need to be intimidating because you've likely done much harder things like given birth or 
you know, move. There's so many other more difficult challenges. And I'll say one last thing. The only way to ever gain confidence in a domain, and whether this domain is physical and this domain is lifting weights, the only way to do that is to actually do the thing. Yeah. And that is confidence that is built within the arena. Gabrielle, I am. I want to get into specifics on our next episode together. Um, right now, though, I want to give them some resources. And folks, thank you for joining us on this journey as we seek to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. Gabrielle's new book, which again, those uh, who are watching, you can see it over my shoulder, is Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well. Uh, that's what I've been studying. That's the catalyst for the conversation here. Find her on her podcast to tune in to this information every week. You just search for the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon show. And if you want to see what muscle looks like, go to her Instagram page. She's got over 400,000 people. Yeah. If you, if you think you're going to be too bulky as a woman, go check it out. 400,000 people are, are over, over that at Dr. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. So you can find that on Instagram. Um, I want yeah. to mention a, a few Please. other things that I think if we're talking about exercise, I actually, and by the way, I could never be a fitness influencer, created a full workout library. Has oh. over 80 videos that people can get when they purchase the book. Um, we have a whole bunch of other other things that individuals can get, but there is a, a full workout video. Talks about how-tos, if you're a beginner, if you're starting with resistance bands, whatever it is that you... Uh, and, and that's at the website? Yeah, it's at my website. Which is, isn't that the same thing as your Instagram, drgabriellion.com? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, folks, get that. And then uh, stay tuned with us for part two as we get into some specifics of what drives Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And if you appreciate this podcast and want to share it with others, give us a rating on shop on Spotify. Leave us a review and a rating on Apple. And you can subscribe to YouTube and watch the full episode like this one with Gabrielle. Uh, find me at kevinmiller.co on social media. And if you want to learn how to master your own inner drive, get my book, What Drives You on Amazon. And until next time, stay driven. Stay driven.